All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. Help me. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you. Lord, we need you more than we understand. Oh, and there's rumors going around that you're showing up in power in places that you've showed up before historically. And uh, your word says, the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may be powerful on behalf of the one whose heart is perfect towards him. But our heart doesn't mean perfect. It means yielded, open, submitted. Lord, I just really hope that you're looking around the world today. You see some hearts like that in this room. And you'll visit us in a way that we've never experienced before. I'm going to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh-oh. I'm going to need tissues, that's for sure. So, I've told you this before. I don't cry about anything but God's stuff and people's stuff. Like, I've cut myself with a chainsaw. I've broke bones. I don't, you know, I'm, but God can get me, man. Like, well, he's not much of a man if he cries. Well, I guess you'll have to sort that out with Jesus in heaven because he cried. So about what? About God's stuff and people's stuff. So I don't have a PowerPoint. I didn't really prepare because I've studied a ton of history. Now, you younger people, you don't have to feel the burden of this. You younger people that are new to this, prepare. Don't try to copy someone who's been doing it 20, 30 years and say, oh, sweet. I don't have to do my homework. I don't have to prepare what I'm going to speak. But I actually find that it gets in the way and I end up muddling stuff up. Because I've been going hard for 30 years. When God drops something in my heart to say, it's already... It's already almost full bloom. Sometimes I have to get, you know, tighten up a little corner here and there. But I want to share some things with you this morning. Um, and it's really fascinating because this week, some of you guys are aware of the fact that um, it seems like there may be like a real move of the Holy Spirit going on right now in Kentucky. They had one in 1970. And some of you guys aren't Christians. Some of you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. Some of you are Christians. You don't know what I'm talking about because it's been so long. But uh, among those of us who call ourselves born again, because Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. So if that doesn't make any sense to you, then a lot of what I say isn't going to make sense to you. Because unless, he said, Jesus said, unless you're born again, you're not going to be able to see really anything spiritual. Those of you who are born again, You've embraced the gospel. You've let God forgive you through His through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And you've opened up your heart to the Holy Spirit so He can turn you from a disgusting, selfish monster, which we all are. Amen. Before we get saved, we're all disgusting, selfish monsters. But then He transforms us and He puts His heart in us. And people say, well, why are you good after you become a Christian? It's like, because God makes me good. That's why. It's because I have this new compulsion. And I'm not happy unless I'm being good. He makes me good because he's good and his spirit came into me. Those of us who are born again, we've trusted in God to forgive us. He's put his spirit in us. 
and we've committed to follow him, among that type of person, those type of believers, it used to be quite normal. And, and we, have, we teach this stuff in our seminars. For the Holy Spirit to come and visit groups like this in power, just like he did in the book of Acts. It's become such a rare thing now that a lot of even pastors and seminary professors don't, don't even know that this was a thing, which makes me want to pull my remaining hair out because it used to be so regular and everybody used to know about it. And on a Sunday morning like this, if we'd have a little, let's take a few minutes and pray. Half the church would be going, oh God, come in power again. Come visit us again. Because when he comes in power, he just it's kind of the one size fits all solution to everything. You got an addiction? Taken care of. You got a rebellious kid? Taken care of. You got problems in your marriage? Taken care of, right? You got, you know, hooligans in your neighborhood? They'll get saved, right? You got, you know, you're, you're, someone's dying, someone's lost, you know, some, some, someone's your family's so bitter and they're always spewing vitriol off out of the, God will get a hold of them. God will save them. You got problems in the church, disunity, God will melt your hearts together. You'll become best friends. It's like you got rebellious teenagers. You got, you know, it's the one size fits all solution. It's the manifest presence of God. And uh, so anyway, <clears throat> and people used to call this revival, but then that term, terms get abused and misshapen until they almost mean nothing. But it used to mean when God's very presence would come and visit his born-again children, clean them up, straighten them up, fix them, you know, get their heads on the way they ought to be. And it's a pretty awesome thing. So the last time this happened, it's happening at a college, but this is something else. I've studied this for 30 years. I've studied revival when God has shown up and I've seen him show up. And, and actually we have God regularly doing crazy, miraculous stuff in this church that are like little tiny flames, but a revival is like, like he'll take over whole regions, whole countries, but usually he'll start in a church. Well, anyway, this, this school, uh, Asbury, it's in Kentucky. The last one that they had like this was in 1970. And I think this a similar thing happened at a chapel service and nobody wanted to leave. Now that's a miracle right there. A bunch of college kids that don't want to leave a chapel service. Right. But they don't want to leave because God has come. And uh and God changes lives and God heals broken people and and people are just praying and worshiping and they don't want to leave. And you're like, that sounds really boring. And it's like, because that you're not there. They don't want to leave because it's not boring. They say it's the most glorious thing you could ever experience. They they don't want to. They, nobody wants to leave the room. So now people are driving in from other parts of the country. And ever since I've been a Christian, this is something that I wanted to experience. I, I have a wonderful life. We're talking in... We're trying to figure out how can we let people know how wonderful this community is and how much God is doing without it coming across as proud. And it's like, I don't know. Because you don't want to be proud, but man, this is great. So, But it's not revival. It's the same stuff, just not as big a dose. 
People love each other. God breaks addictions. People have walked right out of the, the mental hospital. You know, People have been scraped right off of the street. I mean, it, just miracles. But revival is crank it up. You know, I said on a scale of one to 10, you know, we're a solid one and a half, two here, right? Revival's like, you know, eight, nine, oh, you know, the machine's starting to smoke and rattle. I've wanted to see that since I was, ever since I knew it was a thing. When I read about it, I do this. And so I was up a lot last night and watching videos. If nobody wants to talk from the front, they don't need they don't need overheads. They just they're gonna worship. Nobody leads another song, someone's just gonna start one. They're just gonna worship. They're worshiping. Maybe one of the leaders, and it seems like there's some wisdom there because you have to know how to cooperate with God. When God shows up, you know, like someone knocks on the door, he's you know, God shows up. A lot of people just get caught up in the emotion of it. They don't know what he's up to. If you know what he's up to, he'll stick around. If you don't, you get caught up in the emotion of it or whatever. Try to make a buck off it or make your name big. Holy Spirit's like, that wasn't why I came, and he will leave. But uh, so it seems like the people kind of have, because it's happened there. I think it's happened 12 times since 1905 at this particular school. Um, but, you know, maybe one of the leaders will say, hey, let's have people give testimonies. People are coming up. And they're just girls are girls are saying, I was raped a year ago. My mind was scrambled. God has touched me, restored me. And then you know what the people watching do? They mob her with love and they hug her and they pray over her and they you know and there's probably going to be lifetime relationships for them there and then the leaders who know what's going on they say you know what's going on here said this is what church was always supposed to be we've just turned it into something so subpar that people aren't even experiencing the lord so yeah i watched hours of that last night i watched some testimonies and then you get goofy people that show up because inevitably, of course, you can have goofy people show up. And then it's up to leadership to keep it sorted, keep it on track. So, would you guys like to see revival? The manifest presence of God? It's frightening because the first thing that happens is He's going to purge you. You got bitterness, you're living in hypocrisy, you have an addiction, you're faking it. He says, no, 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 that's not how we do things. We're going to be real, and you're going to be right. I'll forgive you, but we're not playing games anymore. So there's usually a big purging that goes on where God's people, even pastors, elders, deacons, missionaries, full-time people, the holiest person in the church, repenting. And I've read about these things. Horrific stuff like the stuff you guys have done, is brought out, repented of, renounced. And God's like, thank you. Now I can fill that space with healing and joy and peace and all that stuff you wanted.
I just so I just wrote myself some notes. Um, and I do have kind of a sermon. This was all intro. I was thinking, oh no, Lord, I think we've been doing a lot of the stuff that we need to do for revival. You always have to have a serious prayer. They never happen apart from serious prayer. So someone comes to this church and they're like, two hours? What in the world do you pray for for two hours? Did Michael say he prayed for an hour every morning? What in the world could you pray for for an hour every morning? That's just because the church has lost the keys. I'm like, we pray. You know, we're starting to have even all night. We're like, is it really all night? We only go from nine to two. Is that technically all night? Are we really having it? Maybe we should call it extended prayer. I'm like, come on, guys. Really, is that? So, but that's pretty, pretty good. We got prayer. People love each other. People in this church, we have CD groups, so we're not monkeying around. Guys aren't looking at porn. Girls aren't, you know, binging and purging, and people aren't suicidal and harboring bitterness. That's why we have these small groups. We're working on the holiness thing. The Bible says that's opening up the gates. You don't have sin. It opens up the gates for God to move in your life. Like We've got a lot of good stuff going on. We go to the poor. We love the poor and the broken. We got people in here who are, who are on the street and people here. We're nuts, addicts. We're... So I was like, oh, no, but we don't have a building. Oh, man. What if God comes? How could he ever possibly keep a revival sustained without a building? And the Holy Spirit said, uh, have you ever read the New Testament? <laughs> they didn't have a building. They did all right. Okay. So I just have these notes here. I, I have other notes. I've read I've read about these enough to know you can stop a move of the Holy Spirit. Some people are like, no, you can't. And I'll just say to that person, tell me about your extensive history with the Holy Spirit and all the miracles you've seen and how it works, because you're such a strong opinion. You must really have a whole bunch. And usually all that's all they have. You know, kind of like a belly button. We all have one. Right, everybody's got their opinion. Everybody thinks they're right, but unless somebody's really seen the Holy Spirit do some stuff, I don't think their opinion really counts for much. Especially in terms of the Holy Spirit moving in power. But if you study history, you can shut them down. I've seen it happen. I mean, it, it was the word "slobber knock." That's a good word, like a punch across the face where slobber flies out of your mouth, right? <laughs> I was slobber knocked when it happened because the pastor shut it down. I've read about it happening on occasions where people are being honest and open about confession and the elders like, oh my goodness, Ooh, this is getting uncomfortable, sexual abuse, Ooh, that's scary. Oh no, one of my leaders said he was having an affair. Oh goodness. And the, they get up and they say, let's just, and they put some rules on it and the Holy Spirit says, look man, we're going to do this my way or I'm out. And it shut it down. Or people want to claim it and own it. You know, this is a refuge, you know, fellowship church revival. And if you don't line up with all our points of doctrine and you Baptists, you don't get any. And you Pentecostals and certainly not the Lutherans and the press. Uh -uh, nope, this is our revival. The Holy Spirit said, look, I'm not about that either. I want to bless all my kids. And there's precious few things that you have to believe to be one of my kids. Got to be born again. You got to be under the word of God. And you have to really want to follow Jesus as Lord of your life. But beyond that, it's fuzzy. It just is. So you try to get really doctrinaire or whatever. So 
We want him to move. We don't want to quench his spirit. We want to pray. And I found that when people cooperate with God, when he comes in power, he'll just keep on moving and moving and moving. One of the things that keeps him moving is his people keep saying yes, and they keep praying. So when people, like the Methodist, Methodism, the church has gone way off the rails. They've lost their historical moorings for the most part. But back when they were white hot, when the revivals would die down, they'd say, oh, 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 we got to go back to prayer, get back to prayer, get back. We got so excited watching everybody get saved and healed and delivered. We've been, so everybody back to your knees, oh Lord, we just pray, stoke up that fire, Holy Spirit, we just welcome your presence, right? Prayer keeps it going. So again, when the revival comes, make sure you guys keep praying, Lord, please abide. The, the, the scariest thing or the most, I don't know, troubling thing about me uh, in my mind when I think about revival is the fact that it could end. I don't want it to end. I want, it the, Holy, I want the Holy Spirit, if he comes in power, I want him to just keep on burning. And, and he'll stay. He'll stay for years. He'll stay for decades. If you study it out, he'll stay with certain people who know how to cooperate with him. Certain movements, the Moravians, the early Methodists, the whole Keswick bunch that lit the world on fire that nobody knows about anymore. So anyway, I want revival. I want God's presence. God, I love Jesus. I love the Holy Spirit. I love God the Father. I love the Word of God. Because He is the only thing that satisfies my soul. I have, perhaps, the best marriage I know of. That sounds arrogant. Okay, my marriage stinks. I'll be falsely humble. No, God's blessed my marriage. That does not satisfy my soul. I used to be nuts. I'm not crazy anymore. Um, I've got some wonderful, very successful kids. That doesn't satisfy my soul. I've got amazing friendships. That doesn't satisfy my soul. These are all just sprinkles on the cupcake. And God made the sprinkles, and they're delicious as long as you get the cupcake. Handful of sprinkles, not so great. He's the cupcake. He's, he's the thing. And there's one Psalm 60, Psalm 63 says, God's presence is comparable to, I guess if we want to put it in our common thinking, how you feel on Thanksgiving Day, right? I know I shouldn't have a fifth serving, but uh, go ahead, ask it this way, <laughs> right? You're so full, you can't. You're like, no, I just, I can't. We hadn't even started on the pie yet, you know? Like, right, we just, it says I'm so full that it, that's what God does for my soul. And that's what we're all supposed to be experiencing. And yet we're all clamoring after other stuff. Revival, God gets our heads on straight. He says, always been me. Get right with me. You can have that. I'll give you all the other stuff too. Just don't make that your God. Don't make that relationship, your friendship, your job, your calling, all this stuff. Just don't make that your God. Let me be God. So uh, shift gears here. What is God trying to accomplish when he shows up? And this is where we got to get our heads on straight. What is he trying to accomplish? Well, he's 
trying to make me happy. Isn't that what it's all about? Happiness. Doesn't God want me to be happy? You will be happy if you do things right, but you'll never be happy if you try to catch happiness. If you try to catch what it is that God wants you to catch, you're going to be so happy you won't be able to stand yourself. But if you try to run after happiness, that never works. What is God doing when he tries, when, when he shows up like he is showing up in Kentucky? I've studied this out, and I've scrutinized the Bible, and I'm going to give you an answer. But you got to pay attention, because if you don't pay attention, you will misquote me and misunderstand me. God shows up in power because he wants to make you great. Sweet, I get to be the quarterback in the Super Bowl. No, 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 no. Because Jesus had a discussion with his disciples, and Jesus told his disciples on numerous occasions, God's definition of great is upside down and flipped from the world's definition of great. So God wants you to be great, but he wants you to be great from his perspective. And God's logic, the apostle Paul said, the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. So when I say God wants you to be great, I'm not thinking of even the place most of us as Christians, our minds go. The prophet Jeremiah said, let not, I always get these mixed up. He says, let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the, what's the other one? Wise man boast in his wisdom. Don't boast in your intellect. Don't boast in your money. Don't boast in your physical prowess. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So God wants us to be great. He wants us to know him. Now we need to figure out what his definition of great is. So I had one of the most incredible conversations I've ever had probably in my life this week. And if I don't cry talking about this, that will be some kind of a accomplishment. I'm talking to Alan, who is from you. Not that Alan. Not the ice cream man. Yeah. No. We've got an Alan from Africa. In Uganda, just married Michaela. Praise the Lord, I got to... Is there something going on up there? Oh, okay. Um, and uh, he asked me a theological question because I mentor him. I, I, that's what I do. I just I like to mentor guys. I disciple guys. That's what Jesus said. He goes, go into the world and make disciples. Well, what's a disciple? Teach them everything I had to say about everything. That's what a disciple is. You're a disciple when you know everything Jesus that, that we've recorded, everything he said about everything. Until then, you're still, you're still in elementary school or preschool. We're supposed to learn. We're not supposed to be saved and get our ticket to heaven and just sit. We're supposed to learn everything he said about everything. So, Alan, when I'm discipling guys, they're always asking me questions. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about that? Well, it came up in a roundabout way. What does the Bible say about greatness? And so I started, at, I started answering this very theologically. And... My mind went to Philippians 2. I said, who's the greatest human being who ever walked the planet? Yeah, right, right. In the church, if you don't know the answer, try Jesus, and there's a good chance you'll get it right. The greatest man who ever walked the planet. How does the Bible describe his process to the process he went through to greatness? Philippians 2. 
Philippians 2 says. And again, he's going to be doing the NASB, I mean, the NIV, and I memorize it in the NASB. So you'll be going, why is he saying different words? It's because they're both from the Greek, and one committee translated it one way, and another committee translated it in a highly accurate way, but different than this committee. So anyway, those are the kind of things you learn when you come here to church. Just have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, humbled himself. Humbled himself. How do we become great on planet Earth here? We step on people's faces and fire people and betray people and rip people off and, right? And cheat and cut corners and scramble and scratch and claw to get to the top. How did Jesus become great? He humbled himself. He's God. He spoke the universe. Jesus, a lot of people aren't aware of this, was eternal God, coexistent, co-equal with the Father, filling every atom and transcending every atom, transcending this entire universe. He's creator. He, he was with the Father. He brought it all into being. Colossians says that. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, who? Jesus. All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. A lot of people don't know that. They think he started as a baby. No, that's where he started as a man. But he was God. He humbled himself. So that's the direction we're heading is when we're, we're talking about greatness. It said he became obedient, but why? Why? If you read the larger context, it's because he's considering others more important than himself. Jesus Christ considered you more important than himself. What? God, creator God, thought you treated you as if you were more important than he was himself. How? By humbling himself to meet your need. Some of us don't want that kind of person in our church. Why? Because it's it's just beneath me. Really. Beneath you. Any gap between you and another human being, even the most wretched, deplorable, is about as thick as this piece of paper. If you want to talk about the gap that perfect, pure, all-powerful, all-worthy creator God, the chasm that he crossed to come and hobnob with us dirtbags. But he doesn't think we're dirtbags. He thinks we're of infinite value. But he had to buy us back because we'd fouled everything up and we were all covered in sin and we we're all doomed for hell unless he didn't come down and save the day. This is, this is greatness. Jesus was God. Look at that gap that he bridged. There's not really any gap between you and another human being. Oh, they're so immoral. You would have been that and worse if you'd been dealt their hand. I don't even need to go there. Nazi Germany, if that doesn't prove it to you, what's in your sick, twisted heart apart from Jesus, nothing's going to prove it to you. I would have never. That's what Peter said right before Jesus went, oh, Peter, you're going to have to learn the hard way, buddy. Then he denied Jesus, and Peter saw what was in his heart. We are sick, twisted puppies capable of more evil than we can even conceive of apart from Jesus. And God says, but I love those just twisted up, demonized crazies down there. So I'm going to have to bridge this gap. So what did we do when he got here? 
We put him to death. We rejected him and spit on him and made fun of him and kicked him out of our churches. And, and he put up with it. Because we needed it. So he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and gave to him the name that is above every name. But if you know Jesus, you know what he did, the only proper response is to fall on your face. Why? Because he's so stinking great. He is so great. How did he become great? He humbled himself. So God comes in power because he wants to make you great. Because that's what you're created for. You're created to be like him. And we're all crazy, and we're seeking greatness in all these other ways, and none of us are happy. Man, why, why are all the rock stars going to rehab, and they can't keep their marriages together? We're all certain that if I could be up on stage and just have those 50,000 people chanting my name, that empty space in my soul would be filled, right? Why do the most beautiful people on the planet when they get married, like Brangelina, right? Why can't they hold it together? If I was that beautiful and I married someone else that beautiful, that empty place in my soul, that would be filled. Hello, hello. So, maybe I'll put it in my pocket. Because we're crazy. We don't know what greatness is. The scripture says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. There is a kind of greatness. And if you attain to it, there is outrageous joy. But God comes in power because he says, I want to make you great. So back to my conversation with Alan this week. As you know, they live in Uganda. Their friend Michael has a brain tumor. He should, I mean, they're probably watching, so I want to be careful and sensitive to how I do this. But it's, it's extreme. It's severe. And you guys made it possible for them to get to India so he could get treatment, which was amazing, that whole process. It was just, I mean, it's just the whole story is incredible. I don't have time to go into it. But uh, I'm watching. They're taking care of Michael. He has can't see. His head's wrapped. He's in pain. His head's swollen. They took the tumor out. They're try putting him in radiation. And as I'm talking to Alan, and I don't, I don't, I don't think they'd mind me talking about this. Michaela has to walk Michael behind this conversation because he needs to go to the bathroom. So. He can do very little for himself, and he's in pain, and he's struggling. So as I'm talking to Alan about greatness, I said, well, let's go to the judgment, and let's see what God Almighty thinks is great on Judgment Day. There's a couple passages in Matthew. One of them's in chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll separate the nations as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. 
going to separate us all out. He's going to put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he's going to say to those on his right, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was sick, I was in prison, you visited me. And the, when, 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 when did we see you? And he, Jesus says, to the degree that you did it, to the very least, to the most deplorable, to the ugliest, dirtiest, throwaway, nobody cares about person who I love and I shed my blood for. You did it for me. This is God speaking. So I could just go around this room. Right? I could name some names. What you did for Chris, right? You did for me. What you did for Travis? You did it for me. What you did for Melena? You did it for me. What you did for Becca? You did it for me. Right? When uh, Saul was persecuting the church, putting people to death, throwing people in prison. Jesus showed up, literally knocked them off his high horse, right? That's what he did. He said, why are you persecuting me? That's what he said to Paul. What do you mean? I'm just beating up some people. No, those are my people. That's me. What you do to them, you're doing to me. So I'm quoting this as I'm watching them care for Michael. These are some smart, competent, capable young people well i'm it's all right for us to brag on each other right um i'm getting to know alan i really really like that guy michaela is one of the most outstanding young women i've ever known spiritually speaking she's courageous she's powerful she's obedient to the lord they could be doing all kinds of stuff they could be making money you know they but instead they're they go from one impoverished crushed country that they're serving in and bring somebody who was just going to die to the other side of the world where they don't know the language and all they're doing 24-7 is trying to keep this young guy alive. And while I'm talking to Alan, I had an epiphany. It's as if God said, Tad, that is great. That's great. What they're doing is great. On Judgment Day, those are the kind of things that I'm going to be excited about. Lord, I started a big corporation. Yeah, you lost all your kids, you knucklehead. Sorry, I'm not going to look at anybody, right? Lord, I was in the top 40. Lord, I had a New York Times bestseller. Whatever it is we think is great. Lord, I got my master's, got my PhD, wrote some articles, became a medical doctor, a lawyer, whatever. I became the next big, I made an amazing video game, Lord. Did you see the app that I made? It, it had 10 million subscribers. It was crazy, right? And I was like, no, 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 no. It's all about people. It's all about condescending. It's all about giving up whatever you think you are, whatever you think you have to come underneath the lost and the broken and build them up and help them discover me so that they too can fulfill their created destiny, which is what? That they become great. 
and so on and so on and so on. So this is God's, this is why he shows up. And if we miss this, when revival comes and we think it's so we can have the warm fuzzies or we can find peace or we can be powerful. Here's one thing that we fall into as Christians. We think if I was a great Christian, I'd be casting out demons, I'd be healing people, I'd be prophesying, and I'd be going, ooh, that guy's spiritual. There's another passage in Matthew on the judgment day in Matthew chapter 7. Now, we know what kind of thing Jesus is going to go on judgment day. It's condescending, meeting people's needs, taking care of the lowest and the least. But in Matthew chapter 7, he says, many are going to come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And cast out demons and your name perform many miracles you know what he's going to say depart from me i never knew you lord we had a church we had ten thousand people multi-campus site we we're you know broadcast all over the place at new york times bestseller books we're doing miracles we had wheelchairs piled up on the stage and who are you again what were you up to I, I don't see any greatness in anything that you ever did. I don't, you didn't know me. You didn't know what I was up to. You were trying to use the name of Jesus to somehow get the good stuff, get your private jet or your mansion or whatever, or just have a nice little church where everybody goes, oh, that guy's life makes sense. He's, he fits right into the culture, right? Whatever it was. But you weren't about greatness because greatness is doing what Jesus did and condescending. So if you want revival, figure out what God's up to when he knocks on that door and he shows up. And don't be afraid to pray this prayer. So it sounds too proud. Say, God, make me great. God, make me great. Make me so great. Make me the greatest person who ever walked the planet. can't believe you're saying that. All you're saying is make me more like Jesus. Lord, let me get my hands dirty. Let me go to the poor. Let me go to the throwaways. Let me go to the leper colony. Let me go to the prison. Let me go to where the street kids are. Just make sure you say, as long as it's your definition of great. So I said, God, you know, I, again, God doesn't talk audibly to me, if you're wondering, but I still feel like I'm having a conversation. Because it makes a lot of ton of sense the way my mind moves when I'm doing this. But I'm praying. I'm like, God, why do we then seek all these things? Why do we, why do we think that's greatness? And he says, because you want man's approval. And that's the definition that they came up with. You're seeking the approval of the world. And you have to get clear on what greatness really is. I, I know what greatness is because I'm God. I created this mess. You guys just mess it all up. He didn't create the mess. It was beautiful. It was good. We messed it up. But he said, then you redefine things. And so the reason you think that's greatness, money, power, whatever, political position, why you step on each other's heads and then say you, you become great when you get there is because you've redefined it. And you want to, so you have to say, all right, God, I don't need anyone else's approval. I don't need my roommate's approval. I don't need my church's approval. I don't need my spouse's approval. I don't need my parents' approval. If, it's not, if, if they're not saying the same thing you are, I don't need any of it. I don't need my culture's approval. There's only one. And this, isn't this exactly what George Mueller said? If any of you guys are familiar with George Mueller, uh, familiar with him, he's one of the most amazing examples of faith 
in the history of the world. But that's what he did at some point. He said, I, there came a day when, when George Mueller died. I died to everyone else's opinion. I only sought the approval of God. So I said, well, why are we seeking this other definition of greatness? Because you guys want each other's approval. He said, if you wanted my approval, then we could agree on what greatness is, and you could seek it, and I would allow you to experience it. So this all made beautiful sense to me. But it was largely through that conversation. I was like, I don't know if I've ever seen this so vividly, so crystal clearly, as I just watching through my, I think it was on my phone. Yeah, it wasn't even on my computer. But talking to Alan, watching Michaela ministering to Michael, knowing how much God loved Michael and what she's doing for him, she's doing for Jesus. And I was like, boom, this is great. So, then I heard revival broke out, and I've studied so much of it, and I know it's mishandled so often. And they always come to an end, and it's usually because some church tries to own it, or somebody tries to get big off of it, or use it to elevate themselves, or launch their music career, or whatever. And uh, I just hope that if and when the Holy Spirit visits us in power, like how we know what you're up to. We know exactly what you're up to. We will try our best to find houses for those homeless people. We will try to be the parents that those fatherless kids never had. We will love them. Those people that never had a friend in their life, we're going to be their friend, even though they're really difficult, right? Those addicts, that's what we do at our prayer meeting, right? We're praying down all those impossible things. All right, God, you gave us this assignment. We can't pull it off. You know that. So we pray, and we pray, we pray, and then he comes through. When he shows up, it's so that we become great. And ultimately, what is greatness? Greatness, it says in the book of Romans, who God foreknew. So that's us. Everybody that he knew was coming down the pike. That's you and me. Said he pre-planned. That means he had an objective for making us. To be conformed to the image of his son. His goal in making you was that you function as a mom raising kids, as a businessman, some of you as missionaries and pastors, some of you as ice cream store owners, right? Some of you as whatever, realtors, construction guys, that in your context, you are functioning like Jesus. So the world knows who God is. They know what he's like. And when someone does this right, it is so attractive. It's so glorious, so beautiful when they do it right. It's beyond words. The Bible has a word for that. It's called glory. When you see someone condescend and just love a broken person, it's so purely like God that it just makes you want to like fall on your face and worship him. But God allows us to share in that. God allows us to share in his MO. What is it like to be God? What is it like to be Jesus? And what is it like to have the joy of seeing a broken person, a demonized person, a crazy person, a hopeless person, a person who's never been loved, raised up? That's why it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. He went through it all. He, he bridged that gap because he knew that, that that is the... I came up with this the other day. So I told you like these big fancy words. Existential just means it's your experience. There is an existential, existential sweet spot that we can live in 
and we can touch it all the time. And you'll be able to throw your meds, your anxiety meds away, your depression meds away. I'm serious. There's people in here who've done it. Say amen. There's people in here who've done it. Thrown it in the trash. You can find this existential sweet spot where you have so much joy, so much peace, so much purpose, no more fear. And it's when you get on track with God's program for why he made you. It starts with being born again. Admitting you are a malfunctioning little monster. That's what, that's what the Bible says. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And that because of that, you deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But also realizing that God loved you so much that he became human flesh and blood so he could die in your place. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you're a sinner. You deserve God's wrath. Jesus died for you. So believe it, receive his forgiveness, and let him put his spirit in you so you stop causing so much havoc. Let him transform your heart. Let him start transforming your mind so you can start functioning and becoming great and becoming like his son. This is greatness. That once you start doing this, the more you start doing it, it, that's the existential sweet spot. And the world is clueless. They have no clue what they're supposed to be going after. We do. And so we can experience on a regular basis a euphoria. There's some of you guys, and if I just looked at you too long right now, I could start crying. I could go, I could go on all day about stories in this room that I got to be a part of. Stupid, weak. Lazy me, because I am at least serious enough to keep getting up and trying. I mean, pretty much every row, man, I could just walk my way back through this room. Awesome. It's awesome. Awesome. And if we all got on board, the spiritual atomic bomb would go off because God loves to come in and support that. And then he touches us with supernatural power so we can do even more and we can do even more and we can do even more and we can have even more joy. So. Let's keep praying for revival. Whatever you're shooting for that isn't Jesus, just killing you. Whatever you're hanging on to, if you're just like a drowning person who's holding on to a rock, just let it go. Just, just surrender. Just let him forgive you. Let him fill you. And say, let's get down to business. Teach me how to rewire this computer so it functions like yours, beginning with definitions like greatness. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest. There's nothing, nothing, nothing in this world that is going to give you satisfaction, joy, fullness, help you to walk in that existential sweet spot, except rightly following Jesus. Not wrongly following Jesus, which a lot of people are doing, rightly following Jesus. God comes in power so that we can be great. Pray with me. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. I pray, Lord, that by your definition of greatness, you would help me to be great. So that I would be like Jesus and I would go into dark places and I would go to people that others don't want to touch. Go into situations that others would say, 
are terrifying or impossible or defiling, and I could bring your light and your love and your grace and your redemption. I thank you that we get to participate with you in this. And I thank you that as we fulfill your purpose for us, Lord, we do just, we're satisfied. You satisfy our souls. We get to look at you, get to behold you, and we get to become like you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that needs to be saved, born again, Lord, they wouldn't put it off. The devil just wants to get them out of here so he can snatch that seat away, he can distract them, get them screaming and jumping up and down about the Super Bowl and just forget everything that was said here. I just pray, Lord, if there's anyone who needs to be born again, this would be their day. If there's any Christian who's off the rails, they would repent. And Lord, I just we just pray for your glory. We love you. We bless you. I just want you to have my whole life, Lord. Just have it all. Have it all. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're a little bit early. Can you whip up a song? Can you whip up a can you whip up a song? How about uh what about that one? You can have it all, Lord. Do we have that one? You can have it all, Lord. Or you can just pull one up that you like. Or okay. Find the perfect song. And let's uh we'll just close out with this. We'll turn the lights out and we'll love you, Zoomers. And uh uh Michaela and Alan, I'm just I love you guys. I'm so proud of you. Thanks for inspiring us and just being our object lesson about what great looks like. Don't get cocky, though. You'll mess it all up. Keep, stay low. We love you guys. Thanks, Zoom.